Holy cow, what a week for the Flyover Country podcast. We've got a Supreme Court vacancy. We've got the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, beclowning itself even more. And we've got a special guest on the roundtable this week who apparently hates founding father Thomas Paine. We'll talk about it all this week on Flyover Country with me, Scott Jennings. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And welcome to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold alongside again Kevin Grout. Sean Southerd is back. Welcome back, Sean. He's back. back. Again. Good good to be here and to continue to beat up on you, Joe, for your <laughs> hatred of 1970s and 80s pop culture. <laughs> that, that, that's a, that's a, that ship has sailed a long time ago. We're going to get to your hatred of founding fathers in a moment. <laughs> uh, and of course, Mr. Scott Jennings is here right now. Scott, let me just explain this because I will say that one week ago when we recorded a podcast in the hours after President Biden's Really interesting news conference at the White House that, of course, has continued to sort of not pay dividends, but have uh, have implications in a variety of domestic and foreign policy fronts. Uh, but Scott, you know, you we, you kind of had your your tryout here for some of your best material. The following night on CNN, Scott launched into a one minute. I'm not going to call it a diatribe. It was a uh, a manifesto. On 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 the Joe Biden presidency at that point. I, I was thinking more like soliloquy, Jeremiah, uh, something more positive. monologue, monologue, perhaps, maybe, yeah, maybe a red eye. Yeah, it was yeah. a red eye. Anyway, he gave a little speech <laughs> on CNN, and for the first time, many people who had never watched CNN, at least in the last oh ten years or so, refound that network thanks to this and the sharing of this one minute whatever you want to call it here, because you pretty much laid out the case for Joe Biden versus what Donald Trump had been excoriated for during his presidency. First of all, tell us about that. And as far as what are you shocked by the I mean, literally millions and I'm not exaggerating. This is millions of views of this one minute uh, shared across a lot of conservative followers, again, who have rediscovered CNN thanks to uh, this event. Yeah, well, I, I mean, look, I think first of all, we posted it on the podcast feed here, so if you haven't heard it, you can, it is, it actually, call, we call it a red eye, so um, if you want to look at the feed, you'll see it, but but basically, um, I think it was a fair assessment of how Trump was covered versus what Joe Biden is doing, and if you look at the main buckets of criticism on Trump, they were always mostly in three buckets, Russia, uh, coronavirus, and democracy. And I just made the point that on all three fronts, as you, if you listen to it, you'll hear Joe Biden is no better than Trump and perhaps even worse. And I, I wanted it to be a moment of reflection for all of us about what Joe Biden promised us and what we're getting after one year and one press conference. And so I was, I'm glad people are seeing it because I think it's, I think it's a perfectly fair criticism. And, uh, and of course, I say this when anyone asks me about CNN. I have been invited on this network. I've been part of it for almost five years. I have never been censored. I have never been told what to say. I've never been stopped from making an argument. And they gave me a forum with Anderson Cooper and David Axelrod and Abby Phillip, who, who are tremendous people, by the way, to say what I think every conservative is thinking about Joe Biden. So I applaud that panel that we had. I'm glad people saw it. And I'm going to continue to make fair criticisms of Joe Biden where I think it's warranted. And it was warranted last Thursday night. We welcome everyone who's discovering Flyover Country with Scott Jennings podcast as a result 
of that, I call it, whatever you're going to call it here, I compared it as we were leading up to this here to the Thomas Paine's Common Sense pamphlet, which, of course, articulated many of the concerns of of the uh, the colonists, you know, against the oppressive, uh, you know, British government at that time, and and Sean opined at this point that you're not a fan of Th- of our founding father of Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine would I would not consider to be a founding father. You so, downgraded Thomas so Paine. I would say that you know founding fathers have to actually he's a founding, found. He's they a, have to found something. He's a founding commentator. Commentator. What yeah, is he? He a was founding? a founding commentator. Is he was he the original pundit? <laughs> he was the original Scott Jennings. You know. <laughs> You don't talking like about you know, good, good for the good for the occasional so, pamphlet, good for the occasional for, panel for heading are, off to the bar and we, ranting to the passersby. We are going to be going on to uh, Stephen Bracker in a moment, but I have to ask you, what's your beef with Thomas Paine? He wrote some really great pamphlets, and that was it. So you're saying that he wasn't didn't enough do enough? You're you? saying he didn't do enough? He said he every, did not do enough. Every no, elementary no. history. So you're textbook. saying basically his? No, wait a minute. Before hold on. Before we went on the air. Your reaction to the name Thomas yeah. Paine was so like, visceral that it was almost like he was a bully at your high school and it stuffed you in a locker. I want to know what Thomas Paine there did was, to you. There was a Tom Paine at Davis County High School <laughs> in Owensboro, Kentucky, <laughs> who stuffed me into a locker, so I have a problem with that. No, uh, I, I, this is so, political philosophy is very difficult, so we don't want to get into this on your podcast. We have is, much more important things to Not that you have to explain why, but is it because of what he wrote or is it because you think that his... Uh, his name is is, is 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 exaggerated in importance compared to the other people we mentioned. I, I, he was pro French Revolution, and so you know I'm pro American Revolution. So you know, wow. So you you're know. right. You're right. No one cares. Okay. Tried to say that, but you kept you kept drawing me in. Okay. Scott Jennings bigger than Tom Paine. Yeah. Oh, I, I we think, can all I agree. Think, Let think, it be said of me that I think that Scott Jennings more people heard his comments on CNN the other night than Thomas Paine ever reached, and it was greater for the country that people did. Yeah, I think at this point it's like George Washington, you know, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Paine, and then me. And then last week I sort of hopped over Thomas Paine. So I sort of feel like I'm in the top three to five. Watch watch out Jefferson, it sounds (laughs) like. He's coming for you. Flyover Country has got <laughs> It's on the air. Common sense, if you want to call it, uh, one way or the other. I now know why I've been invited back. That's right. Let's, Let's pick on you instead. Uh, so tonight, though, Stephen Breyer, uh, as of course the, the announcement came out, perhaps prematurely. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, not I, perhaps. This was leaked. The, <laughs> the Biden people leaked Breyer's own announcement. But apparently, he told them a week ago. So it's. I mean, how long can you expect? I mean, I'm just, I mean let me come to the defense here. How for long a can you here. expect the president of the United States to hold the confidence of a Supreme Court justice of your own? Political ilk. Was it Joe Biden muttering this down a hall, or was this one of innumerable people in the White House? Let me face it. If you have something like that, and if a Supreme Court justice is stepping down, you can't expect it to stay quiet for an entire These week. These are people who picked up the morning polling and were like, we got to change the subject right now. I don't care. Breyer's going to be pissed, someone said. I don't care. We got to change the they topic. They couldn't wait one day. Not that, brother. Have you, have you seen the polling that came out on Sunday? It's going to be the same people, tomorrow as it is yesterday. I, I would say these people are... In the toilet, but that would be an insult at the bottom of the toilet. I mean, you can't go any lower than these guys. They are desperate for a change of topic. Well, that's right, Kevin. And I'd like to say, they tried to get Justice Breyer to retire last year. There there was a a truck billboard driving around D.C. Funded by dark money. Exactly. (laughs) 
Where and is Sheldon Whitehouse <laughs> when <and> you need him? <laughs> he said no. He he took that personally, and I, I agree. So maybe uh, he hasn't, as far as I know, submitted any paperwork yet to actually retire. I think by the time this podcast is heard, he will have already announced this. Uh, I, I don't predict the um, future. Unless unless he, of course, takes umbrage at the fact that it was leaked and says, you know, Justice Pryor, I'm feeling Colin's pretty good. Tomorrow. Could you imagine? I'm not dead yet. <laughs> could, you, could you imagine? He says, you know, I was thinking about it. Yeah. Well, that's great. But let's just talk, first of all, immediate reactions. We're going to talk a little bit more about the possible replacements and how the process is going to go. But, Kevin, let's go to you first here. Immediate reaction to hearing this as far as the country and political implications. And we should say, Kevin, you were in Leader McConnell's office for all three of right. Donald Trump's nominations and confirmations. So so your experience here is important. Right. So I think the temperature is going to get turned up really quick. There's going to be a lot of money, a lot of interest focused here. Um, I think when we first saw the news, everyone said, yeah, we kind of expected that. Uh, we all kind of thought it was going to happen before the midterm when there was still a Senate Democratic majority. Um, Justice Breyer, you know, we you know, might not agree with his ideology or the way he reads the Constitution, but he is a, a, a towering intellect, a very engaging and smart guy. I like listening to him on the bench. Um, so a, a great career and only an America story. So, you know, he, he deserves a, a pat on the back. Quick, Sean, if you had to choose a pickup basketball team and the only two players left were Thomas Paine and Justice Breyer, who would you choose? I'm not sure about Both it. in their prime. Yeah, in mm. their prime, top of their games, both sort of wily shooting guards. I think I'd probably <laughs> choose Thomas Paine at that point. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Throw okay. a loop there. Reaction. I, I think it's interesting that this announcement or this decision, you know, it was allegedly made a week ago uh, on the heels of what we learned today about the Supreme Court taking up affirmative action mm-hmm. and the Dobbs decision, mm-hmm. which is looming. And I think that those are things that history will come to reflect upon and wondering what what were the factors that went into play for the good justices' decision at this point? Uh, it, it seems to me like, like there might be something at play there. Are you saying this portends what the decisions actually will be, the rulings in both of those cases? I mean, I don't know. I don't have my pulse on the, the Supreme Court, especially on Stephen Breyer, uh, to know what exactly his pulse rate is at this point. But uh, I think that, you know, it, it does raise questions about where the future of the court is at this point. Uh, and coming off the OSHA decision, coming off of... Uh, the the decision on what we're expecting and Dobbs and then what we can see in the affirmative action just the fact that they took up the affirmative action uh, decision at this point to like to hear arguments is is something that I think should should shed light on May why he decided that this is a time that he needs to step down. Are you suggesting that perhaps in this in the similar way as we've seen a wave of Democratic retirements in the U.S. House, you know, ahead of what is expected to be a midterm flip? of that chamber. Are you saying that, that Stephen Breyer is somehow discouraged by what the court is doing or that you think that he needs to, he, he feels the need and the urge to make sure that there's a, a similarly minded justice in place because of what's happening right now? Well, I think that's kind of the same question. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think that he's, he sees that, you know, he, the Democrats are likely to lose control of the upper chamber in the next midterm election and that he knows that there's a president of his party, his alleged party right now. Uh, and a chamber that, you know, Kamala Harris can preside over and vote for her own nomination to appoint herself to the Supreme Court. 
And, uh, you know, I, th I think that that's definitely a factor going into consideration. Scott, your immediate reaction before we get to some of the other vagaries here. Yeah, my, well, first of all, I mean, it's a foregone conclusion that Democrats are going to fill this seat. And, and you know, I, I fully expect Joe Biden to nominate someone extraordinarily extreme, which is a violation, by the way, once again, of how he campaigned. Mm -hmm. Campaign is a moderate. Hey, I'm going to try to lower the temperature, and he's going to end up nominating someone far more liberal than 99% of the country. So, but, but look, they're going to fall in line, the Democrats, and, and put this person on the bench. And by the way, I fully support the president's right to nominate. I fully support the Senate handling it however they see fit. So I, I believe that under the Republicans. I believe it under the Democrats. So A, immediate reaction doesn't change the balance of the court, uh, but certainly makes it a little younger and more liberal. So that's number one. Number two, I do think this is going to uh, raise hypocrisy questions about the Democrats here, I mentioned it earlier, but all the dark money that went into pressuring Breyer ought to be noted. All the dark money that's going to be spent propping up the campaign for the person who uh, gets nominated. You know, these are all the things that Democrats decried during the Trump year. So I do think we're going to have some, some moments of hypocrisy. Number three, I think it's interesting that in the immediate wake of this announcement, there were more than a handful of Democrats and people in the media trying to get rid of Kamala Harris off this Biden ticket. I mean, that, I mean, right out of the gate, right out of the gate. Ooh, the rumors are Joe Biden's going to put Harris on the Supreme Court. This is nothing more than people recognizing what an enormous political liability she is and trying to get rid of her ahead of 2024. Now, it's, it's not going to happen. But the idea, the idea that more than a handful of influential Democrats and media people were trying tells me something about what they're seeing in their own polling. Wasn't there some talk of that, though, even when she was running as vice president, that she potentially could fill that seat? Maybe I'm just making that up in my memory. I'm, you know, retro That's your truth. You're living your truth. That's part of your reality. Jim. So back to you, Scott, and then we'll come back around. Um, political implications as far as the timing. And, and Sean already pointed out that Stephen Breyer is certainly aware of the dynamics that are out there. But A, number one is that it's a complete uh, you know, terrible time for the Biden presidency right now. That's one thing. Other thing, of course, is the fact that the timing of this can neatly kind of fit in between the end of the court session and the midterm elections, not just as a practical matter in terms of the, the, the Senate perhaps flipping to Republicans and this becoming much more difficult, uh, you know, uh, come January. But in terms of does this give, if you're a Democratic operative and you're looking for something to feel good about the Biden presidency and to deliver on his promises, he wasn't able to deliver on Build Back Better. He wasn't able to deliver on Bernie Sanders' agenda, but he can basically give them all what they were longing for in who his pick is today. I think people are vastly overreading the positive political implications of this. The reality is they're going to nominate someone who's liberal to fill the seat of someone who is liberal. It's going to be long been settled by the time the election rolls around. And this country isn't magically going to fall in love. And I don't think Democrats, again, are going to magically fall in love with Joe Biden just because he did what they expect him to do, which is to put a liberal to fill a liberal seat on the Supreme Court. So, you know, th this, this is a... This is a chance for him to check the box that he laid down during the campaign. But again, I would just say he's going to put someone on the Supreme Court that is probably the same or no different than this person Bernie Sanders would have put on the court had he won the nomination. And it is, again, a reminder to the American people that the guy who campaigned as a moderate is nothing more than an extreme liberal who lied to you. And I think 
Republicans are much more motivated by the Supreme Court and you know the federal courts in general and who's on it. Uh, I mean, 2016 is a great example. There was everybody knew there was a Supreme Court seat at stake, and I think a lot of credit has been given to helping that helping push. Donald Trump over the finish line. Also, the possibility of a vacancy or an open seat is a much bigger driver than as a thank you for just filling a seat. I mean, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed weeks before the election, and it clearly didn't push Donald Trump over the finish line the second time. So I think Scott's right. I I don't foresee a great political benefit for uh, Biden in the midterm. I think it's the midterms are a foregone conclusion. Uh, Next time he's on the ballot again, I, I don't see it helping. Interesting question to really wrestle with, and and Scott, you being the political expert here, I would be interested in your opinion on this. But, you know, how do these moderate, so-called moderate Democrat senators, deal with this question as they head into the midterm elections? Is that they're going to have to face not only the fact that they voted to get rid of the filibuster, but now they're going to vote on whether or not they're going to confirm someone to the Supreme Court. Uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy questions about this. There's a lot of there, there's just a lot of political intrigue with this, mm. and so my question is, is: How does you know a Mark Kelly in Arizona deal with this? How how do they go through the normal sort of procedure in the middle of an election year that we have had a lot of experience with? Like we have not heretofore, we have not dealt with a lot of. Um, except for the last three years, dealt with a lot of people confirmed in the middle of election years, and so. How are these moderate Democratic senators who were raising hell during the Trump years about confirming justices going to deal with this in the middle of a midterm election where their president is not doing well, politically speaking? Well, it's a, it's a great question because I think it is imperative that the Republicans hold the line here and don't give Joe Biden and the Democrats any space. And by that, I mean, if all 50 Republicans vote no, then it means every Democrat in the Senate is essentially casting the deciding vote. And that includes New Hampshire, Arizona, Georgia. And although he's not on the ballot, it also includes Joe Manchin. And so it, to me, and and I know one of the leading uh, contenders from Biden's list was confirmed to the circuit last year and got, I think, three Republican votes. This is different. This is a Supreme Court. And to me, if the Republicans can hold the line here and get 50 no's, then it makes it easier in the election to hold this against the Democrats in the targeted races and in the more conservative places that you mentioned. I mean, look, Joe Manchin's the only pro-life Democrat in the U.S. Senate, and he'll be put in a position where he has to vote for what I assume is going to be the most radical pro-abortion justice ever nominated. I want him to feel that pain in West Virginia. I want Mark Kelly to feel that pain. I want Warnock to feel that pain in Georgia. I want Hassan to feel that pain in New Hampshire. It gets harder if two or three Republicans give him the space, and say, well, it wasn't the deciding vote anyway. It was already a foregone conclusion. Well, what about just the, the, the notion of, and perhaps it's a quaint notion from decades ago, that this is less about whether or not you agree with someone's uh, judicial philosophy and more whether they are bear the qualifications of being a Supreme Court justice in terms of their intellect and their, let's say their, their, their demeanor, their, you know, their, their approach to the bench. I, th- I think we have somebody here with us that lived, I think the last time I was on this podcast, that lived through the judicial wars. And nobody would have enjoyed having those sort of standards being set more than the Bush administration yeah. mm-hmm. in the year 2000. I mean, during the Bush years, and I was there, this, well, first of all, let's go all the way back. Right. This started with Bork. Yep. Yes. Then, right. then the attempted, uh, you know, high-tech 
lynching, right. as he said, of Clarence Thomas. And then it, it cascaded forward. And then you get to the Bush years, when Chuck Schumer and Dick Durbin and Joe Biden stood down on the floor of the U.S. Senate and specifically filibustered Miguel Estrada, a Bush appointee, later it was found out via their internal strategy memos they filibustered him for the express reason that they did not want a Hispanic put in a court of appeals because they feared he would then be put on the Supreme Court. They filibustered him, a highly qualified judge, a lawyer, they filibustered him because of his race. They didn't want Republicans to put a Hispanic on the Supreme Court. So, look, I, I hear you, but Democrats have set the rules here. Yeah. Democrats have set the rules of these judicial wars. And, and look, I, I get it. I understand what you're saying. And maybe there's an argument for that, but Amy Coney Barrett was qualified, Brett Kavanaugh was qualified, Neil Gorsuch was qualified, and I'm just not ready to roll over and show my belly to people who would never, ever, ever do that for a Republican president. But if I mean, I'm being Pollyannic here, but is there a chance to press the reset button at any point? Are we can is has Bork changed things forever? Is there ever a point to get back to regular order? I mean. Well, no. I mean, at this point, the filibuster for Supreme Court vacancies has been tripped. So this is now just a simple majority. And look, I, I think the nature of the Supreme Court, particularly in this environment, I mean, look, Sean mentioned it at the st top of the show. Look at the issues before the court right now. Abortion, affirmative action, you know, the CDC stuff that just came down. I mean, look at these are highly consequential, but highly ideological matters. And so the idea that a, that a Republican senator who campaigned as someone who was pro-life would roll over and say, well, I'm pro-life and I believe in protecting the lives of the unborn. However, I'm willing to cast my vote for a qualified person who is going to have abortion on demand. Okay, here's the question. That is, that is anathema here's the question, to Kevin. the average conservative. But isn't there a difference between – I'm not saying that the Republicans are going to roll over and vote for whoever this nominee is and presumably someone who is going to be pretty far uh, on – to the left of, of Stephen Breyer, even probably to satisfy the base of of the progressive wing of the of the party of the of, of Joe Biden. But that said, isn't there a difference between voting for the nomination and not being actively involved in trying to block it? In other words, if there's a cloture motion or some, and I know there's different theories out there right now about right. what can happen. The, the Judiciary Committee, because of the the Senate being fifty fifty, is eleven eleven, and there are some folks. And you can maybe correct me if this abuse me of my notion here, who are suggesting that because of the nature of the way this is going to proceed, that it wouldn't just simply be a motion of a majority to bring it to the floor. You need a motion to discharge. It might take a cloture vote of 60. So at that point, you'd have a filibuster. So I, I, but my question is, is, should the Republicans, is there an expectation on the Republican side and, their, and that base and the people who are as aggrieved as Scott Jennings to say you have to do everything in your power to show that you want to fight this. I, I fully expect Senate Republicans to fight it tooth and nail every way. And honestly, it's like Scott was saying, it's a responsibility and a promise that they made their voters to go through every page, to scour every document, to ask the tough questions, and, because we would want nothing less for the highest court in the land. And you're right, there are some procedural gums in the works that, you know, we, you found a lot of parliamentarians on Twitter today it's probably not best to address any of that yet because it's far too early. However, what I don't think you're going to see, I don't think you're going to see Senate Republicans lighting their hairs on fire and coming up with these just absolutely untenable, deranged ideas and making it a media circus. They can be opposed and adamantly opposed, and they can and they probably should be, but I don't think you're going to see a lot of the just visceral ugliness um, 
from the Kavanaugh hearings, you know, I, 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 would, I don't want to say it now, but it's been said in the Senate. I don't think we're going to be talking about gang rape because I think Senate Republicans probably just have more respect for the institution and everything. That doesn't mean they're not going to be vi vigorously opposed. Uh, but I think they might, you know, show everyone a modicum of respect. Go ahead, Sean, because I, I, I want to address that. But go, go ahead. No, you, you go. Well, look, here's what I think about this. I think Senate Republicans, I think Senate Republicans ought to treat the process as vigorously as Democrats did, but I don't think they should treat it as flippantly. Mm, exactly. And so Democrats treated all of this so unseriously as to completely fabricate allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, as to go crazy about Amy Coney Barrett's faith. They treated it so unseriously. I think Republicans ought to contest this, but ought to do it in the most serious manner possible. I think it's perfectly fair game to question someone's record, to question their views, to question, you know, how do, do they have the judgment and qualifications to sit on the high court? Do I think we should go around lowering ourselves to the standard that a Democrat set for themselves under Kavanaugh? Absolutely not. But that that's different than vigorously challenging this, which I think the Republican voters expect us to do. But I will just say, what they did to Kavanaugh, and frankly, some of what they did to Amy Coney Barrett, right. was some of the most despicable, gutless, spineless, useless political theater. And you talk about, when are we ever going to get back? Are we ever going to press the reset button? I would argue that what they did during Kavanaugh makes it virtually impossible. I'm not recommending Republicans take the low road, but I am recommending that they show that they can seriously contest one of these without stooping to that level. So you're saying that I should not point out that I'm aware of serious allegations against two of the people who have been named uh, as potential Supreme Court nominees, and I can't go to the, into them which ones right now. I have to wait to see who they are. You should call the hotline. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. a hotline will be set up. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you need the phone number for Diane Feinstein's office? I'm just saying. <laughs> That's right. In fact, if you send her a memo... She might sit on it for 30 or 60 days. And then, and then, then later, later just suddenly stumble across I mean, this we, dusty we, we should, we could You could do a whole podcast, hey. uh, three hours, just recounting all of the absolutely miserably evil things yep. they did to Brett Kavanaugh. And when you think about it now, it seems insane. That was them. That was the Democrats. I'm glad he's on the court. And I, by the way, I haven't been all the, altogether that happy with Brett Kavanaugh. I work with him. I, he's done a couple things on the bench that I, you know, his original ruling on the CDC thing. I mean, I, look, I, I, I haven't been altogether happy with him, but I will never forget what they did to him as a person. I don't think Republicans should do that to a Democratic nominee, but I do think we owe the Democrats here a vigorous challenge that shows us to be more serious, but committed to our values. My prediction is, is regardless of what how Republicans challenge whomever the nominee is, that will be compared to that and saying this is payback because tough questioning will be equated to scurrilous uh, accusations. Well, we, we need grounding for everything we do. Democrats had nothing. We need grounding, and I'm sure we'll have it. And, and, and it should be on the, on the question of values, and I really do think there is something to this issue of Biden campaigned as a moderate, and now he's put on the most liberal nominee that has ever been nominated for Supreme Court in American history. I, I, think, I think that's a relevant thing for us to point out. Well, the other thing, too, is that Democrats for years, for generations, have spent exporting people onto into the judicial system to overturn decisions that were enacted by legislatures for, for generations. 
And so what this really comes down to is the fact that they are upset now that the Republicans have had the political leadership for, you know, four years or six years to put conservative-minded people that interpret the law as written, and now they're upset. And that, that's what this is all about, is that they're upset that people are going to interpret the law as written and overturn, you know, judicial decisions that were wrongly decided. Do you think that the Republicans and the base would be uh, more fired up about this? Of course, I, I don't know how fired up. We haven't seen over overnight polling yet as we're recording this hours after this news came out. If it wasn't considered to be a 6-3 conservative liberal tilt, if it was 5-4. Yeah, I, I think there's something to that. I mean, a couple things. I, I mean, I think the average Republican is going to be fired up when they find out just how liberal the nominee is. However, you know, this, you take solace in, A, the guts and courage that Mitch McConnell had to block, uh, you know, Obama on Garland. B, the guts and courage that Trump and McConnell had to get three on, including Amy Coney Barrett at the end of his term. So you take solace in that uh, and also in the fact that, you know, essentially it's 6-3. I mean, maybe it's five and a half to three and a half. But I, mm-hmm. but I, but I, but, but I, but I, I agree with you that if this thing were the balance of power, it would be far more politically motivating, probably for both sides. Right. It'll also be interesting to watch the dual track because you know, the confirmation process is likely to start within the coming weeks while the Supreme Court is still sitting. And as we get into the summer, while they're handing down decisions. So if, say, the Supreme Court rules in Dobbs to overturn Roe, I think you're going to see the enthusiasm shoot way up on both sides. Here's a question. I did a a quick interview this afternoon with a reporter uh, from the L.A. Times. And the question to me, and I wanted your all's opinion, the question to me was, does it make more sense strategically for the Democrats to do this quickly or to drag it out? And does it make more sense for the Republicans if it gets over with quickly or drug out? And my initial reaction was it actually might be in the strategic interests of both parties for to have it to have it go quickly. For the Republicans, my view was they want to get back to focusing on Joe Biden as quickly as possible and his abysmal record. And for the Democrats, the longer this drags on, the more people from West Virginia find out about the pro-abortion views of this nominee, the more people are going to call Joe Manchin's office. So there, it may be in both of their interests to get this over and done with. I think, to your first point, though, because this will take the some of the, the media pressure off of Biden and the other failures that are going on, the more that you can talk about something else and the more you can blame it on Republicans, I think the better that helps Biden. So I, to me, it's... It's better for Republicans if it goes. If it's going to happen anyway, it's better just to rip the bandaid off and let it happen as quickly as possible. And I think if I were a Democrat, I'd want to drag it out and and make it be a an election issue right up to the uh, a fundraising issue and a you know basically get the base upset and get mad. If 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 they're blocking and we know it's going to be a black woman, uh, you know if if they're blocking a black woman from reaching the Supreme Court then this is the absolute uh, motivation to to win this race. Democrats have to be very careful how close they get to the election because they made a lot of hay about how close uh, Republicans were confirming justices, how close to an election. So they Oh, they, well it was it was uh, the reason Joe Manchin voted against Amy Coney Barrett. The stated reason was right. that it was it was uh, happening too quickly, too right. close to the election. So that that was the reason he gave. I, look, they they're going to have this done before the term is over. I, I would yeah. be stunned if this isn't over by the end of the term, don't you think, Sean? I agree. No, I think I think that it, it it's done. It's going to be done very quickly. There's no reason to let it go on longer. They don't want to put their members in a vulnerable position longer than they have to, and they don't want to give Republicans anything to campaign on beyond. I mean, if they're going to be able to campaign on the fact that there's a pro-abortion 
uh, justice. Like they don't, they rather have that person on the court rather than have it be an election issue that that is then up in the air. I mean, ultimately, you know, the core political question is: Does this fundamentally alter the circumstances of this midterm? And I, I told the LA Times today, I thought no, because for most people, well, first of all, you know, who cares about Supreme Court justices? The most partisan Republicans and the most partisan Democrats. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is still worried about inflation. They're still worried about, uh, you know, the price of gas. They're still worried about. Uh, you know, the things, there's kids' school, crime. I mean, th- those are the fundamental voting issues for most people. And by the time this election rolls around, this thing will be ancient history. So I don't, I, I, my view was, I think the insiders are going to fight about it and discuss the strategic intricacies of it. But ultimately, it doesn't change the playing field, which at this moment, it's hard to imagine it being any better for Republicans. Well, and if, if midterm elections are anything but a referendum on the president, you know, appointing a Supreme Court justice is not going to change any of the, the the trends that we've seen in the polling for President Joe Biden. Like, appointing justice is not going to change how he's dealt with COVID, nope. what's going on with Ukraine, what went on with Afghanistan. Yeah, like none none of that none of that is going to change the fact that he appointed somebody to the Supreme Court. The only thing it may salvage is a long-term legacy because, we, as we've talked about on this podcast before, he has very few legislative accomplishments to speak of. His international and foreign policy legacy is abysmal and likely to get worse in the next few weeks. This could be one thing 10 years from now they look back and say, okay, well, he kind of helped there. Well, I'm sure it will be. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're going to put on a very young per. I mean, if I were in their shoes, I would find the most liberal – Young, youngest liberal I could find who meets the bare <laughs> threshold here, so they could be on the court the longest. Right. And 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 this is how Democrats appoint justices. They don't. I mean, they put them on to vote the right way. They don't put them on to, you know, think too hard about this. They put them on to vote the right way. Case in point: Look at the people Obama put on the Supreme mm-hmm. Court and how they have acted in recent Supreme Court arguments. They have said some of the most. Sotomayor has said some of the most asinine things, uninformed things during these arguments, because. They're there to drive a political ideology less than a legal ideology. Well, that's, I mean, look, Biden's going to do the same thing. This person's going to be young. They'll be on the court for 40 years. And you will be able to predict with 100% certainty how they're going to vote in every single case. You can find the Flyover Country podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and check out Scott's interviews on YouTube and leave us a voicemail, speakpipe.com slash theflyoverpod. That's speakpipe.com slash the flyover pod again i'm joe arnold kevin Broaddus here sean southern welcome back great to be here joe. and mr jennings you uh you know the the supreme court is here's the thing that it's it's a foregone conclusion it's we, we know what's going to happen here the it'll be some interesting drama we'll see how it all plays out um another election happened this past week uh, a, a big choice somewhat controversial that the the national baseball hall of fame the baseball writers of america chose to put in someone in the Hall of Fame who has at least one positive steroid test back in 2003. Allegedly. And, and oh, allegedly. you're getting him going. <laughs> you're getting our <laughs> B-Town guy going. Screw it. Get around over here. And a career one-dimensional player. Never really played much defense. Maybe a couple times at first base. But basically, <laughs> his entire time was just a, it was a beer league softball home run hitter, <laughs> David Ortiz. And but basically, who, who, by the way, and you pointed this out to me earlier today. For for the first chunk of his career with the Minnesota Twins, was literally just kind of a serviceable, like yeah. you know, not not a great. And then all of a sudden, magically, yeah. oh, magically, he turns here? into the greatest hitter of all time. What exactly. what could have possibly happened? And at the same time as 
everyone else got real good. Exactly. So, uh, what about that? Hey, Jared. Well, okay. First to start, the the, the two thousand three positive test is alleged. That was those were anonymous tests, and we do not know who actually tested positive during those years. All of that being said, and, and I'm interested to get because you guys are a little bit more baseball purists than me. I don't care about the steroid era. I truly do not care. Like there is no part of me that is like it, they were cheating. It was a distinct advantage. Like anybody who's actually tried to hit a, a baseball with a baseball bat knows that no matter what you were injecting in your butt or your vein, it does not matter. Like it, I, so as actually, a result, then to be consistent, then you're thinking Rafael Palmeiro, Mark McGuire, all of them. Uh, Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, all should be in the hall. Yeah. So that to me is not at all uh, like a a, a denier. Um, I don't even think it really breaks the character clause part. Further, <laughs> all right. All right. Um, the the argument that that David Ortiz's statistics or the fact that he was a, a DH for a significant portion of his career should deny him from the Hall of Fame is just a lazy argument. He is, if not the greatest, one of the greatest postseason hitters of all time. The greatest clutch hitter. Of all time, and that is statistically true. If you yeah. look at the statistic, the uh, the uh, sort of the advanced metric about about when players produced yeah. their War. offense uh, in in, in, in in the postseason, it is by far and away Ortiz. Listen, I, yeah. I I completely agree with you. I think he obviously is deserving on the merits of his hitting. I'm just saying, put a big old asterisk in on his plaque. As a one-dimensional player, <laughs> like, as a like literally on the plaque or yes. like a sticker next to it. <laughs> how many anyway. how many steroid tests have to take positive for you to be eligible for this? Because uh, you know Barry Bonds. No, I'm not even I mean, saying I'm not even saying asterisk because of steroids. I'm saying that, that, that that's just to be. But you're consistent that other players should be allowed in. I'm yeah. saying asterisk because of DH. He's a one-dimensional player. Only played offense for the most part. Played very few defensive games. His career was offense. Yeah, but I mean, much of Barry Bonds' career was too, and he absolutely deserves. Early to be. on with the Pirates, great defender, Barry Bonds. But that's, I, a, that's but for most of his career. records are offensive say, records. I, I mean, I, for most players, I'm kind of with you on. Well, first of all, I don't know how you can have a Hall of Fame of anything in which the people who lead the most important metrics of the sport in question are not allowed in. So the person who has the most hits, Pete Rose, Pete Rose, yeah. not in the Hall of Fame. The person who has the most home runs, Barry Bonds, not in the Hall of Fame. How can you have Hall of Fame without the people who did it the most of what we consider to be the most important? Uh, one other issue on this steroid is so. So for that, look, I these guys dominated, yeah. and they would have dominated anyway. They were great players. I will say, and if you haven't listened to it, a few months ago I listened to an episode of a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell. He has a podcast mm-hmm. called Revisionist History, and he did a whole episode on Andy Pettit. Because remember, Andy Pettit, yep. great pitcher for the Yankees, got a, a, a positive uh, banned substance test. And it was because of a substance he was using in the course of his rehab from an injury. And anyway, if you listen to the, it, it gave me a whole different perspective on the theory. I mean, this is not like Popeye squeezing a spinach can, <laughs> eating it, and then voila, you know, he's got massive... I mean, in case of in the case of Pettit, it, it was really more nuanced than that. And anyway, it gave me a different perspective. And I've come around to where you are, Jared, yeah. on this, and that the era was the era. Yeah. We know the players that dominated, and to not put them what? in the hall makes a joke out of the hall. If I could. I, yeah. I don't disagree with you that it's 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 it makes no sense for the greatest players of an era not to be in the Hall of Fame. However, 
the fact that some of these players, in the steroid era especially, and players I enjoyed watching, were this was were warned, were told not to, and were still doing it. Especially like well, Roger, Cle- Roger Clemens. I don't even know that I'd buy that, though. I mean, and, and the bigger question or the bigger problem here is that the, the Baseball Hall of Fame is, is just full of hypocrisy, right? Bud Selig is in there, the commissioner of baseball, who oversaw During the all of this era. and allegedly played a role in keeping some of it secret and sort mm-hmm. of pushing it because the 500-foot home runs sold. They filled stadiums, right? Like – they created these massive uh, characters for, for M- the MLB to sell. And so the, the bigger problem is like the hypocrisy with the Baseball Hall of Fame. And, and part of that cheapens what it means to be in there too. I mean, Schilling, Clemens, I mean, at, at this point, rejecting the idea that they even wanted to be on the list to be voted. I mean, something's wrong with your Hall of Fame if you've reached that point. Um, and then on top of that, I mean, guys like Bonds who – Ever, like, <clears throat> like I think Schilling deserves to be in there. Clemens. <clears throat> I mean, Schilling. Yeah. Schilling's clearly not in because of his but politics. Schilling right? is I mean, not. It's, a, clearly, it's not part yeah. of the steroid era no, stuff. No. Yeah, right? it's I clearly mean, political. And here, and, yeah. and, and, and but you're talking about something that I think is crazy. Basically, if the sports, it's what well, it's like. I tweeted this. It's like any other election. If they like you, they'll vote for you. Yeah. Well, they like Ortiz. They yeah, don't right. like personally Bonds, Clemens, and Schilling. And guess who got in? I don't disagree with you, Jerry. By the way, Jerry Crawford, producer, <laughs> Our of the, producer the man who puts it together. Us here, I don't disagree with you that the that there are contradictions and hypocrisy, and the, yeah. and so it's it doesn't make sense for one to be in and not the other. My concern overall as a baseball fan is that I always hoped that the game would survive, and the reason why you keep watching any sport is because, and the reason why the word integrity is important of, of integrity of the game is you have to believe when you're going to watch this contest that it's being competed fairly. That it's an even play, it's a level playing field, and people mm-hmm. are basically on the same rules. Now, you can make the argument, well, the steroid era, that was the era. Yeah. You can make the argument, in the same way, frankly, you make the argument before Jackie Robinson that all these white players were having un- uh, basically a disproportionate uh, talent level because they weren't playing against some of the best players in the game. They weren't allowed to play. You can play, make the argument that in World War II, when Ted Williams was over fighting uh, and, and, and flying missions, that you know, he the pitchers at that time mm-hmm. didn't have to face the, the best hitter because he was serving his country. So there's yeah. all kinds of. And the other thing is, frankly, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, it's bizarre to me. I mean, steroids had actually never really bothered me as much as as it does some people. <laughs> but you know what's crazy is the fact that we allow a transplant surgery to take a ligament out of a cadaver and oh, to yeah. put, it put it into it in a, elbow, a human yeah. arm. And say yes, you, we've, we're basically we're making like bionic people. Performance yeah. enhancing ligaments are fine. Yeah, yeah. No, performance is, enhancing say, drugs. So that technology yeah. didn't exist years ago. We're letting that go on. So I think it all is very inconsistent. Yeah. But I think in the long run, is my, my concern is the health of the game that's being played right now. That's on MLB to make sure it's it, they're, they're they're sticking to the rules today. But don't expect the Hall of Fame to retroactively try to enforce some contradictory uh, rules. Do you all think it's fair? That the only people who get to decide this are these sports right. I mean, there's there's like one yeah. guy who doesn't even vote for anyone. His mm-hmm. ballot's always blank. Right. It, this just yeah. drives me crazy. It, and, and I'll tell you why. Because for the All Star Game every year, they let the fans vote, and you can vote like 25 times. Yeah. Right. I mean, they've made a mockery out of All Star voting, but then they protect this thing, and the people who are supposedly protecting it have made a mockery out of that. I I just I feel like they ought to open this up. I well, saw one one, one one player tonight tweeted. Forget I got to look it up. 
What if we gave every player that had more than 10 years of service a Hall of Fame ballot? How Would, would Bonds and Clemens be in? You bet your ass. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I just think that, the, like, this is the problem. I, I tweeted this last night, that if we created a Hall of Fame of Hall of Fames, the Baseball <laughs> Hall of Fame is getting left out, right? Like, it has, it has lost all its credibility. The Baseball Writers of America, nobody respects who they're actually choosing in there. And so even if we want to have a legitimate argument about uh, David Ortiz, greatest clutch hitter of all time, yada, yada, all, you know, three-time World Series champion, does he actually deserve to be in? It almost doesn't matter because we've just cheapened this to the point where, like, we don't... I, I have a modest proposal as far as who should qualify for, to be a voter. I think your attendance at Major League Baseball games or your subscription to MLB.com should enter you into a drawing, and they, then, you, then fans are the ones at least get a portion of those votes because the fans are always the one left out. They're, they're being left out right now during the lockdown and the lockout mm-hmm. of what's going on, and they're completely... I was saying earlier to Scott, we, we basically, this, this is a... Uh, and I love baseball... But I hate MLB because this is an yeah. abusive relationship, and yeah. they just keep abusing me, and I keep going back and saying it's okay. <laughs> but I, I still love you. They, they, it's terrible. They, By the way, during this entire conversation, Kevin, <laughs> Kevin and Sean are literally on Wikipedia. What is baseball? What is a what is a baseball? This is amazing. I'm, I'm waiting for Thomas Paine to come back. <laughs> he was Wicked a lefty. Curve. He was a lefty exactly. Wicked for the, curve. For the, he was a lefty. That was his problem. That's right. For the Indians, now the Guardians in the fifties. That's exactly. a whole story. Right. You know, on this on this Ortiz thing, by the way, I think he should be in because he he really, I mean, the dude had some amazing, yeah. you know. Uh, uh, I mean, some of the biggest plays of the last 15 years he was involved in it. But he said yesterday he thought Bonds and Clemens ought to be in. Yeah. He said he thought they should be in. Maybe because everyone loves him that he can convince them to come over to his Well, side. I thought yeah. it was classy for him to say that. By the way, we can't end this podcast without acknowledging that a member of this panel himself is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, that's true. Joe Arnold is... A part of Joe Arnold is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Joe, enlighten the people. Yeah. Which part of you, Joe? Well, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. my ligament. <laughs> it's waiting to be. I in. actually donated it in advance. The janitorial uh, service will be using. So, Lou uh, Brock's 3,000th hit back in 1979. My brother and my dad were at that game. Anyway, I was so excited about it, but the, the St. Louis Globe Democrat, a newspaper which no longer is in existence, the following morning printed a, a full page. This is before ESPN, before you could like have highlights on demand. So it's shown before your lifetime. I know. This is, <laughs> anyway, it's like they ancient. had instructions on there. You could, you could, they, and they had the shutter, basically, the, a series of photographs on the whole page where if you cut them out and you put it on index cards and you flip through it, you could watch the swing. Like an old-fashioned Nickelodeon, okay? So I made this, and I wrote it all out. I I mean, literally, it's like Joe Arnold. an old-fashioned Nickelodeon. It is literally (laughs) like That was an exact (laughs) phrase that was just used on this podcast. I mean, where are you going to get content like this? You've got Nickelodeon Man over here. You're like the the original GIF. (laughs) These these are the people. No, GIF. (laughs) (laughs) These are the people keeping Barry Bonds and Pete Rose out. (laughs) It has I to be said, No, no, you got to finish. So anyway, so I, long story short, my, my late brother and my dad and I went up to Cooperstown uh, uh, years later, and I and I was and I'm up there, and I did a little TV story for the, the TV station where I used to work here in Louisville, and I uh, and I present, I showed, hey, so I have a few things here of my baseball past, and this was one I didn't even think about, and he said, what's that? And I showed it to him. He said, I think this is good. He said, let me let me take this to the. Uh, to the committee, which like looks at artifacts, so I got so I left it behind, 
And sure enough, I got a, 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 a certificate and a letter later saying we've we would like for you to donate this to the Baseball Hall of Fame and be part of our permanent collection. We've, we've taken it now. So I am now in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Basically, yeah. he's the Thomas Paine of the Baseball I Hall am. of Fame. He gave them a pamphlet. I, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just shocked to be in company that is you know greater than Barry Bonds. I mean that you're, you're Joe you're Arnold out. is in. Clemens, Schilling, and Bonds you are know out. What Nickelodeon is. Do I know what Nickelodeon is? Yeah. yeah. Do you know what Nick and Knight is? <laughs> <laughs> Sean's like, you mean the SpongeBob SquarePants people, right? <laughs> I would say it's been a pleasure to be with you this time, but uh, Scott, back to you. Well, it's been a fun podcast. Uh, coming up uh, in the days ahead, we have an interesting interview with the governor of Oklahoma. Sir, uh, that's sit. coming out here in the next few days. Uh, and then we've got uh, another great guest coming up after that, which is, has nothing to do with politics. And I, I found it fat. Joe and I interviewed a guy. Anyway, you're going to want to be with us for that. We've got some other interesting guests lined up for the spring. And uh, I actually think we should get somebody from the world of baseball. I don't know who, but we should get somebody. Let's get Kurt Schilling on here. Crawford, this is your mission. Go <laughs> yeah. find... Your mission is to either get Hulk Hogan, Check who we talked about, or Q-A Kurt Schilling. Subreddit. I think In fact, there. if you could get Hulk Hogan and Kurt Schilling at the same time, or this would be the wild. Nick at night. <laughs> <laughs> if you could find someone from Carson Nick at night, Bailey or you know, <laughs> the Baseball Hall of Famer who's here with us tonight. That's I mean, right. that's right. We're deeply grateful for everyone who listens to this podcast. I, I love the messages that I, I get from people who've heard it and people who say, "Hey, I'm listening to you all, and it's like I'm, you know, we're sitting around the campfire having a chat." I, I love the engagement. Thank you all very much. Sean, Kevin, Joe, Mr. Crawford, thank you for your contributions this evening. You are on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Thanks. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com. And you can also find me at scottjenningsky on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing, and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Thank you.